Good morning. You will have no problem hearing me this morning. It, um, I felt a little bit, Rick mentioned, don't sing anything louder than a talking voice. Fortunately for me, my talking voice is very, very loud, so I get to sing in the same way that I talk, which is just very loud to begin with. Um, please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. I just want to echo what Rick said earlier. Families, we're glad you're in here. We're glad that you are with us and that your kids are loud because that means they're here. And just a word of encouragement from the guy who's speaking this morning to you as parents. I can look past a lot of things. And one example, a few weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, one of my children was sitting on the back of the pew. And some saw what happened. I didn't even notice it. I just barreled on through, kept on preaching, didn't see a thing, and found out later that she actually fell off the back of the pew and was kind of holding onto the pew upside down. I didn't see a thing. Didn't see my wife trying to pick her up and didn't see anything. So kids, we're glad you're in here too. And for those of you who don't have kids, and Rick kind of mentioned you're the indicator for those families when those people are, when those kids are getting too loud. If you want to encourage a young family and kids and families with young kids, don't turn around. That'll be the most encouraging thing you can do this morning when their kids are being, being loud. Philippians chapter 1. We have spent the past four weeks working through most of chapter 1, and hopefully what we've seen is Paul's priority has been the gospel in every area, in everything that he's talking about. His emphasis has been put the gospel first. He's put the gospel first in his introduction, in his greeting to the people in Philippi. He's put, his, put the gospel first in his relationship with those people and how he talks to them, how he prays for them. He's put the gospel first in his own life. Wherever he is, whatever situation, chains, no chains, it's the gospel and it's the preaching of Christ. That's all that he cares about. Whether he lives or whether he dies, it will be Christ. That is proclaimed. Paul now shifts gears and he moves from talking about himself and how he thinks, how he approaches life, his approach to people and to ministry. He changes just a little bit and he now shifts in chapter 1, verse 27. He shifts to the people in Philippi and he shifts to how they ought to be thinking, how they ought to be acting in light of what he has just said about the gospel taking priority in your life. Dear Christian, this is what you ought to think and how you ought to act. And this is what he says in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Would you join me in praying this morning? Father, we are grateful to be together. It is a thanksgiving like we have not had ever for all of us in our lives. This is not what we have experienced in the past. It's not what we're used to, but we still have much to be thankful for. We are thankful that you are king, that you rule and reign right now, that with chaos and uncertainty that we see in the news, we know with certainty that you have everything in your sovereign control. We are grateful that we serve a king who sees everything and a God who knows everything. And we pray this morning that as we come to this passage, that as we try to figure out what Paul was writing to these believers some 2,000 years ago, that you would help us understand what it means for us, what it means for us as we follow you and as we seek to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul shifts and he moves from what he was talking about, how he thinks, how he processes his life and how he prioritizes things in his life. And he now shifts to the Philippians and he says, whatever happens, that is whether I come and see you or whether I only hear about you and I'm not actually there, whether I'm absent from you, this is what I want. Paul's instructions, what he's about to tell them, it's important not that they just obey, not that they just do it while he's there, but that they do it while he's not there. His physical presence is not what conditions his command that he's about to give. It's how they ought to act regardless of his presence. It's a call for sincerity. It's a call for genuine action, genuine care for what he's about to say. Parents, I know that you will tell your children to do something. You will tell your children to treat each other kindly, and you expect them to do that even when you're not in the room. We just recently finished our basement, and that is our new playroom, and we send the, the girls down there, and we say, no, no, be nice to each other. Don't yell at each other. Don't pull each other's hair. Don't take toys from each other. And on a good day, we get about half an hour before there's a scream. And what we've told our children as parents is not only when I'm in the room, you are supposed to act this way. You are supposed to act this way whether I am here or not. You ought to listen to what I have told you to do. We want them to be genuine in listening to us, not just the, oh, mom's looking. We've all seen that look, right? When when you come around the corner and whether whether they're your kids or somebody else's kids, kids automatically, oh, an adult, uh, oh, I I wasn't doing that. I, I wasn't stealing something or hitting somebody. I wasn't doing that. Paul is saying, Philippians, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether I am with you or not, here is what is important. Here is what I I'm commanding you to do. He says this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is not Paul's instruction to work to become worthy of the gospel. He is not saying work hard, even whether I'm here or not, whether I'm with you or not, work very hard so that you might become worthy of the gospel so that you might become worthy enough to one day, one day attain the benefits of the gospel, to earn the rights of the gospel. The benefits of being a believer in Jesus Christ have already been given to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that because you have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness, 
into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves, act like it. Act like the child that you are. Act like the Son of God that you have been proclaimed. There's examples in the New Testament of Jesus healing many people, right? Jesus heals Bartimaeus, the blind man. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, I want to receive my sight. He says, your faith has made you well, and Bartimaeus can see. Or the people who could not walk, the lame man who could not get up and get himself into the pool of Siloam. Jesus healed him. Jesus healed many, many people. And you know what all of those people did once they were healed? They did not act as if they had not been healed. Blind Bartimaeus did not continue his life acting as if he was blind. He had been given his sight. And he lived his life in accordance with that new sight that he had been given. The lame men who could now walk did not sit and beg as if they still had no functioning legs. They got up. They walked. Paul says, you have been brought from darkness into light. You have been given sight. You are lame people who could not help yourselves and you have been given this great gift in Jesus Christ. Start acting like the new life that you have. Act it out. Work hard, but not to earn because it has already been given. You work because you are grateful. You are grateful for what you have, for what you have already received. So live it out. Paul then describes in the following sentence what kind of conduct citizens of the kingdom of heaven pursue. What, what do they look like? Because we can say, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we go, well, what in the world does that mean? What does that look like? And in many ways, it will look slightly different for all of us. We all have different works. We all have different jobs. We all have different grocery stores that we go to, different neighbors. We all have different ways in which this will specifically look a little bit different. But Paul uses three phrases, and they're all military languages, which this is just for free, just a fun little tidbit. What, what does Paul typically use? If he's going to use an analogy for what it means to live the Christian life, what does he usually do? I know it's hard to shout, and you're not supposed to shout, but give me something here. What does Paul usually use? If he's going to use an analogy, what does he use? Running. running. It's athletic. He's typically using the athletic analogy of running the race. Paul uses, in these next three phrases, military terms. It's different. It's a shift. And you might wonder, well, why would Paul diverge from his typical athletic analogy? He does so because of the background of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was founded on Roman conquest. There were many Roman legions within Philippi. And citizenship, Roman citizenship, was very valued in Philippi. The people of Philippi were very proud people to be Roman citizens. They were proud to have the Roman military as a part of who they are. It was part of their backbone. They were very, very proud of that. And so in that culture, in that society, understanding the kind of analogy that these people would understand, he says this, stand firm in the one spirit. Stand firm as soldiers stand firm, side by side on the battlefield. You do not break rank. You do not break your lines. You stand firm no matter what comes your way. You stand firm in the one spirit, one common cause, one common goal, not for yourself, for that one thing that you serve. 
You serve Jesus Christ in the one spirit. That one spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ that indwells every believer, that is, he is the one who is giving you that one vision, that one goal. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the, as one for the faith of the gospel. That is, fight hard. Don't give up. Don't slack. Strive together. Contend together as one. You have to be unified. You can't be running off in all sorts of different directions doing your own different thing. You have to stand together, striving together as one for the faith in the gospel. That is, Paul actually says, you're not fighting against anyone in particular. He doesn't name, fight against the Roman rule. Fight against such and such a government. Fight against so and so. He doesn't even say fight against this religion or that religion or that error or that way of thought. He says strive together and fight as one for the faith of the gospel. Fight for Jesus. Stand together without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Without being frightened, that phrase there, I found this was interesting. Soldiers would use that term to describe a startled horse. Have you, ever, have you ever been around horses? Has anybody ever been around horses regularly? Not too many? Okay. When I grew up, where I grew up, we had a couple of farms around the area, and some people in our churches, they had hobby farms and they had horses. And I remember as a child, I would walk around and we'd look at the sheep and we'd look at the goats, and the horses were the ones that you never got close to as a six-year-old by yourself because you don't sneak up behind them and startle them because they will kick, and you have no idea where those feet are going to go. And soldiers would say that, using this term, horses in battle would get startled. They'd get frightened, because there's so much going on around them in the battle. And that's where blinders were invented for horses to keep them focused. That's, that's why you'll see those horses, they've got those things over their eyes, and it keeps them from seeing everything around and beside them, and it keeps them focused on the one, one place that they are supposed to go. It keeps them from jumping and getting startled. That is, their focus on one thing helps them from being afraid of what's around them. Paul says, stand firm in one spirit as soldiers stand arm in arm striving together, not necessarily against anybody in particular, but for that one thing that you have in common, that one belief that you have in common, that is the gospel. And don't be afraid at what's going on around you. Focus on Jesus Christ. Focus not being distracted and not being afraid. Paul says that when you do this, that is when you act this way, when you as a body of believers learn to stand together in the face of opposition, whatever that opposition may look like, whoever that may be, when you as believers learn to fight together, not fight against one another, when you learn to strive together for the gospel, when you learn to not be afraid at all of the peripheral things that are going on around you, that doesn't mean you ignore them, but it means you are not afraid. It means you are not startled. Why? Because we are focusing on our one goal, Jesus Christ, the gospel of who he is and what he has done. Paul says this in verse 28, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, a sign to those that oppose you that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Paul says that when you as believers put aside your differences, when you put aside the things that annoy you about each other, 
when you can look past the things that maybe frustrate you about each other, when you learn to stand together and focus on the gospel, when you learn to strive together and focus on the gospel, when you learn to not be afraid at what's going on in this world and focus on the gospel, it's a sign. It's an indicator. It actually tells something to both people inside the church and outside the church. It's an indicator of two things, destruction and salvation. Destruction for those that are outside and salvation for those that are inside. There's a little bit of ambiguity and a little bit of commentators go back and forth on what exactly does this mean? What is this sign? What is this sign actually talking about? How can it be a sign of destruction for those that oppose Christianity? There's a couple of ways that you could look at it. One way you could look at it is it could be the way, you know the story of the Alamo? I, I was introduced to that story by the, the Davy Crockett Disney video. Did anybody ever see that? Yeah? It, Davy Crockett, he's king of the wild frontier and he wrestles bears and all that stuff. And then he ends, we end the movie at the Alamo. And the story of the Alamo is there's 2,000-ish Mexican troops coming against 200-ish U.S. citizens, Texans. And the, the Texans are trying to stave off the, the Mexican army. 2,000 versus 200. And, and they were given the opportunity, those in the Alamo were given the opportunity, surrender and you will be okay, you will not be killed. If you come out, if you surrender the Alamo, you will not be killed, you will not be destroyed. And those in the Alamo sent for help, they got some help from um, the U.S. government, sent some soldiers, it wasn't enough, and it turned out that they stood, they fought, but they lost. They lost the Alamo, the Mexicans overran them, Mexicans overran them. When the Mexicans saw that those at the Alamo would not give up, the Mexicans knew it was a sign of destruction. That is, standing together, standing firm for one belief that this is U.S. soil, right or wrong, doesn't matter, that we will stand here together and we will fight as one was a sign of destruction for the Mexicans because they said, there's no hope for you. That is a sign of destruction that if you stand together, united on this one front, you will die. You cannot last against a massive army. Those that oppose are stronger than those that stand. It's one possible way of understanding the sign of destruction. There could also be a way in which the sign of destruction to those that oppose, not like the Alamo, it's more like those near the end of World War II who were in prisoner of war camps, who knew that the war was over, who knew that the Allies had won, who knew that there was nothing that the opposing powers of Germany and all of their allies, there was nothing that they could do to win. And there's an American prisoner in a German prisoner of war camp. And the Germans are doing everything that they can to get this American soldier to give up information. You give up. You you denounce the United States of America. You denounce everything that you stand for and everything that you believe about freedom, about liberty, about what should be done in this universe. You give that up because you are our prisoner. You are not going anywhere. And if you do not, you will die. And that prisoner regardless of what the outcome of their life will be, they know that the victory has been won by their side. They know that you can kill me. You can take me out. You can lock me up and throw away the key. I will not denounce what I stand for and what I believe. And the German prisoner guards who are watching that American soldier stand
stand firm. They have recognized that in that moment, if I cannot break that prisoner of war, the war really has been lost. The prisoner gives up when he knows that his side has lost, but the prisoner does not give up when he knows that his side has won. I don't, I don't need to revoke or renounce what I believe and what I stand for because my side has already won the battle. The war is over. Yes, maybe the final details still have to be worked out. And those that oppose those who stand, they see that as a sign of their own destruction. They see that as a reality that their side has lost. Whatever it may mean specifically, whatever this sign of destruction may mean for those that oppose, what Paul has emphasized is your character, how you treat each other, the unity that you strive for together, your character speaks volumes both inside and outside the church. The way you treat each other, the way you talk about each other, the way you pull together and stand together as one, it tells the world something. It tells them of destruction and it tells them of salvation. Four, Paul continues, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That struggle, that struggle that Paul has been talking about in the previous verses has been prison, beatings, and as we know from the book of Acts, there's shipwrecks. Paul has been left for dead. Paul has gone through his fair share of struggles, and he says, you Philippians, you're going through the same struggle that I have. That is, there are believers in that church who are facing chains, who are facing beatings, who are facing floggings. There are people who are looking at Paul and going, I'm going through the exact same thing as you. And that's why Paul can say this. What I've done, you should do. I'm not just telling you what to do from the outside perspective. I have experienced what you have experienced. And he says this. Your struggles, your striving, your persecution is not an accident. Suffering is a gracious gift from God. We like the first half, right? Where Paul says, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him. We all agree on that. We all like that part. Is it not a gracious gift that God has bestowed on you the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not, this not of yourself that is the gift of God. Why? So that you can't boast. That is, every believer in Jesus Christ has been given the same gift of salvation and you have no reason to boast about that. You're not smarter than anybody else. You don't have it all together in any way better than anybody else. There's nothing special about you in any external sense or an intelligent sense. It was a gift. The Lord gave you a gift, that gift of salvation, that gift of belief in Jesus Christ. It was a gracious gift. The part we don't like is that tagline thing at the end that Paul says, but also to suffer for him. Paul says that not only your faith is a gift, but your struggles, your sufferings, the things you go for on, go through on behalf of Christ, those are a gift, a gracious gift. Suffering does not feel like a gift, does it? Like, can we just be honest? Like, suffering and pain and hurt it never feels good. That's the nature of pain and suffering is that it doesn't feel good. And Paul says it's a gift. 
It's a gracious gift that you have been given a gracious gift in your suffering on behalf of Jesus, not for no reason. We have the option of saying that God can control all things, that God can end pain and suffering but chooses not to, which makes God a little bit of a nasty guy. If he has the ability to, to stop pain and suffering but doesn't want to and has no reason for it, has no reason whatsoever, that leaves us hopeless. But if we can look at what Paul says and we can go, okay, I've experienced pain and suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ. And this didn't catch God by surprise. He didn't, he, he's not trying to figure out what to do now. He has actually given me this experience on purpose. Jesus has suffered on behalf of his people and secured their salvation. That's the nature of the gospel, is it not? That one man came and suffered on behalf of the many. That Jesus Christ came in your place and suffered in your place and died the death that you ought to have died. That's the nature of the gospel. One person suffering on behalf of the other. Now Paul says, this suffering that you experience is not out of God's control. It's a gracious gift. Why? Because now you get to live out. You get to experience. You get to proclaim in the way that you suffer on behalf of Jesus Christ. You get to actually proclaim the gospel. You get to, in the way that you suffer, recognizing that this suffering is not an accident, suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ is actually the way that you proclaim the gospel. Not the only way, but it is one of the ways. Suffering on behalf of another is at the core of the gospel. It's what we proclaim Jesus came to do for sinners, to suffer on behalf of you. Jesus came and suffered on your behalf. Now we, in our faith, in how we stand together, facing opposition, facing that struggling, facing that suffering, together, we proclaim the gospel. D.A. Carson summarized it very helpfully when he said, conduct worthy of the gospel. That's what this whole section is about. Conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. If you want to know how to live your life in accordance with the gospel, if you want to know how am I living my life in accordance with the gospel, how do I know if what I am doing is not bringing shame to Jesus, it's proclaiming Jesus? Your life should promote the gospel in how you suffer. How did Jesus go to the cross? Silent as a lamb before the slaughter. Not bending, not breaking, not giving in. He stood strong and he went to the cross on your behalf. Now, what we have been called to do is suffer on behalf of him. Not for no reason, so that you can proclaim the gospel to all those that oppose. We are like those in the Alamo who from the outside, it looks like we are just the dumbest people in the world to stand for something that just really doesn't even matter. The world sees the gospel not only as something that doesn't matter, as utter foolishness. And we have an opportunity in the way that we suffer for Jesus Christ to not just stand and, and bolster our own pride and sense of accomplishment. Yeah, I didn't break. I didn't, I didn't bend. I stood for Jesus. It's more than that. It's proclaiming Jesus. And it's saying, this is what Jesus has done for you. 
He has suffered on behalf of sinners. Conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Therefore, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, on the basis of living out the gospel in the midst of struggles, on the basis of standing together and striving together for the gospel so that you might proclaim the gospel and who you are and what you do, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and Paul says these things, he's, he's not stating these things as if they're not true. He's, he's assuming these things. He's assuming that these four things that he's just listed if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. It's not if, maybe, hopefully, it's, Paul is saying these things in a way where a wife might say to her husband, if you have any love for me at all, you will not go outside in that t-shirt. If you have any love for me at all, you will get a haircut, please. And, And what is she saying? She's not saying that her husband has to figure out if he loves her or not. She is assuming that her husband loves her and that because you love me, please express it by getting a haircut or not wearing that t-shirt or whatever it is. Does that make sense? What Paul is saying is, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, these things are true of you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these things are true. Do we not have encouragement from being united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, knowing that our, our hope in eternity is secure in him? Is that not encouraging for you this morning? If you have any comfort from the love that Jesus Christ has towards you, if you have any comfort, it's not like you're trying to search for any little bit of comfort. He's saying, we are definitely comforted by the fact that Jesus Christ has come and died on our behalf. That kind of love brings us great comfort Any common sharing in the spirit, we are all indwelt by the same spirit of Jesus Christ. That is true. If you have any tenderness and compassion, Paul says, take what you have received. Take those things that are true of you. Take those things that are true of you because this is what the gospel is. This is the gospel that has influenced and changed your life, that gives you that kind of character to stand and strive together in unity. Paul says, Take what you have received in the gospel and pass it along to others. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Being like-minded. Like-minded with each other? Yes. Primarily like-minded with Christ. And we will come to that, Lord willing, next week. What the mind of Christ looks like. What his approach to this, to the gospel looks like. Paul wants them to have the same goal. He's not calling for cookie-cutter Christianity. He's not saying, have the same mind, act, talk, and think the exact same way. That would get really boring, wouldn't it? I think it would be great if you all act and talked like me. (laughs) Thank you, Nancy. What Paul is saying is, maybe this is, hopefully this is a helpful analogy. Has anybody ever done any rowing? Like serious, not like a row boat, but like any rowing in college or anything like that. I I never have. I did one thing where it wasn't rowing, it was paddles, but me and my brother, we were asked by my cousin to fill in. She was on some boat rowing paddling tournament thing. Am I being clear? I have no idea what we were doing. Me and my brother, we showed up at the lake and they handed us some paddles. We put on some life jackets. They said, sit next to each other in this boat. And there was like 10 or 15 of us. And they said, row, paddle. What? 
That's what it was. Oh, it was a dragon boat race. Thank you. Oh, oh I forgot what that was called. Thank you, Dwight. Have you done that? No, he hasn't done it. Okay. When we, are, when we were paddling, we were told, we were given very clear instructions, do not row as hard as you can. Do not row as fast as you can. We were told there is one person who's sitting at the front of the boat. Can you see them? You listen to their voice and you listen to what they are saying and you row together unified in what they are saying. Being successful in rowing does not come from everybody just rowing as hard and as fast as they can. Being successful in rowing or dragon boat races comes from everybody submitting to the same voice, submitting to the same goal, being willing to do what is necessary, to be unified with each other, even though maybe I could row a little bit faster and a little bit harder than some of the people behind me. That's not the point. It's pulling together. Paul is calling for unity in the one common goal, the like-mindedness of Christ, the goal of preaching and proclaiming the gospel, not just in word but in deed, in what we do and how we stand, how we suffer in proclaiming the gospel. Paul sums it up in this verse. He finishes with this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What Paul is saying, he's not saying that you shouldn't care about yourself. He's saying don't care only about yourself. In the same way, he will instruct husbands to not just love themselves, but love their wives as they love themselves. You, you obviously love yourself and take care of yourself. Take care of your wife in that way. Don't be a jerk. Paul is not advocating in this verse false modesty. He's not advocating self-deprecation. He's not saying that you push yourself down and kind of pour dirt on your head and say, woe is me. We're not called to be Eeyores, right? We are not called to be downers. We are not called to put ourselves down in a way where it's really just annoying for everybody else. Woe is me. Oh, everybody's so much better than me. I'm worthless. I can't do anything. Paul is not saying that. He's saying, he's summing up the kind of unity that we are to have, what that actually looks like in day-to-day life. He's saying, Christians don't ask what they can get from each other. They worry more about what they can give. This one verse, we could probably spend three or four Sundays just trying to figure out and pull apart what exactly does that look like in our lives. What Paul has said is there's no room for Christians in church to worry more about what they get from each other. If your first concern is not what can I give, you're not doing it right. That's all that Paul is saying. You are more concerned. Not that you don't care about yourself. We need to care for ourselves. We need to care for our spiritual health. We need to care for our emotional and mental health, our physical health. We still care for ourselves. But our first priority when we walk through these doors is not, okay, now what can I get from so-and-so this morning? It's not even necessarily what can I get from the preacher this morning. It's what can I give. Maybe it's not much. Maybe it looks different every week. But it's what can I give Paul says that a Christian's first concern should be, what am I giving? How much can I give? Not what can I get? Do you guys like creamsicles? You know what creamsicles are? Not popsicles, creamsicles. Kids, how many of you like creamsicles? Okay, there's a couple of honest kids back there. Matt's not a kid. I guess he's a kid at heart. That's fine. You know the creamsicles, it's the ice cream. It's the vanilla ice cream with the... the, 
fruity coating over top of it. It's just syrupy sugar stuff that's frozen. Those, those are some of our favorite treats in the summertime. And what are our favorite colors? What are our favorite uh, kids? What is your favorite creamsicle? Orange? Orange? What else do we got? Matt, what's your favorite color? Blue. Blue. Blue is always the first one to go. What about red? Do we like red? Yeah, okay, we got one for the red. You know what color nobody likes? Well, white's just the ice cream. That doesn't count. Nobody likes the green one. Have you ever noticed the green one is always the last one in the box? Green is always the creamsicle that nobody takes. I will take the blue one first and the red one first, and I will leave the green ones for last, because it's not that the green ones are terrible, but the blue and red are way better. You know what Paul is instructing the believers at Philippi to do? Eat the green one. He's saying, you still get a creamsicle, but be willing to eat the green one. For the sake of somebody else, oh no, go ahead, you have the blue one, that's fine. You go ahead, you have the red one. The orange one, you know what? Those ones are way better than the green ones, and you should have it. That may be the most childish and unhelpful analogy that I could give. But do we understand the thought behind that, the thought behind what Paul is saying? Be willing to give up. Be willing to give and give and give. And do you know what that looks like when every Christian gives? Nobody is left out. This works when every believer is unified in their one common goal of giving it everything that they've got for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will give and give and give. And I can do that because I know you're all doing it too. That I know that you're concerned about me and my health and my well-being and my spiritual and emotional health. I know that you care about my family. Therefore, I can just give it everything that I've got for Jesus Christ because I know that you're there with me. Eat the green creamsicle. Care more about each other than about yourself. All for what? Your name? Your glory? Your boasting? No. So that in doing that, in standing together, in giving up the blue creamsicle for the green one, we proclaim Jesus Christ. We proclaim the gospel of who he is and what he's done. He came to suffer on behalf of sinners. And you know what? Eating the green creamsicle is not really suffering, but it's one small thing, and I'm going to give the blue one to somebody else. I will give it to you. I will suffer in the face of opposition, and I will suffer in some small sense in and amongst each other. And as we do that, it's not for nothing. It's to proclaim Jesus Christ. Father, help us to proclaim you, to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim the gospel and who we are and how we act, that in how we treat each other, that we would care more about each other, not, not for some selfish sense of pride, not for some selfish sense of inner glory and greatness, that I'm so much better than everybody else because I care more about everybody else, but that by caring for other people, we proclaim Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Help that to be our goal. Help that to be our calling in who we are and what we do here at Crestwick. Help, it to, help us to preach Jesus and how we pull together and are unified for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.